Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode contains references to drugs and the sudden death of a child, so please take care while listening. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint. Gabby Logan here, and this week I'm continuing my series of interviews spotlighting extraordinary people. People you may not have heard of, who've overcome adversity and are changing other people's lives for the better. So not so focused on midlife this week. But my hope is that these stories and the lessons my guests have learned will inspire you at the stage of life that you're in. My special guest today is Fiona Spargo Mabs. Fiona came to my attention when she did a talk at my daughter's school. And the talk was all around an incident in their family's life, something that happened in their family's life, which changed their family's life forever. But what has happened since is that Fiona is changing other people's lives because she's educating them about drugs. And the reason she's doing that is because of what happened to her son, Daniel in January 2014. Let's go back, Fiona, and thank you so much for coming in to talk to me today. And you can tell the story of that fateful night. So going back before that, uh, I can tell you a little bit about Dan because he was he was our younger son. And Dan was one of those boys that everybody liked. He kind of made you like him. He just, <laughs> he, he was very likeable, very lovable. And he just, he loved being friends with everybody and everything was more fun and more interesting was when Dan was around. Dan was the prom king of his year. He was big hearted and kind and um, funny. He'd gone into sixth form at school and he was doing really well actually he he was in a really good place you know he was he was really kind of coming into his own we just I remember Tim and I saying uh, Tim my husband um, saying to each other despite our worst efforts they seem to have turned out to be such lovely boys both of our boys Jacob and Dan and we honestly thought that the worst was I don't know why we thought that. You got that, through the worst Yes, years. you know, all those worries yeah. when they're little and you think, am mm. I doing too much of them, being too strict or too lenient? And should I be letting them watch less telly? Or, you know, all of the things that you worry, more activities, less activities, um, and, and not knowing what that's going to look like the other end of it. And I thought, we've got the other end of it. And what lovely boys we've got. And what a joy it is being the parent of two lovely boys. At that and point, then, your older son had gone through A-levels. Yeah, so he'd gone through A-levels and he'd gone off to university. So he'd just done his first term studying history. So we'd gone through the whole kind of bereavement. <laughs> Jacob's gone. Flying the nest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we can't empty the dishwasher. And then you can the just Jacob focus on Dan and his yeah, A-levels. Yes, absolutely. And he went into sixth form and you know he'd been in the school production. We had the best ever parents evening that November. It was the first one of his entire life, I think, that was undiluted praise. He's doing really well at everything and then he came home from school on a Friday in January and he there was a party the next night they'd been looking forward to or he had for ages with his 
friend George's big brother, it's, it was his 18th and it was kind of quite a big deal. Marquee in the garden and a DJ and um, a bunch of George's friends were going to be able to go. And that was on the Saturday. And then Dan came home on the Friday and said, oh, yeah, mum, there's another party tonight. Is it all right if I go? So I asked all those things that you ask, you know, where would it be and who'd be there and when would it finish? And when would he be back and how was he going to get back? And there were things that just... It was just a bit different from how parties had normally been. They'd normally just be very local around someone's house and their parents would be there. And this was going to be a bit further away, but not very far. You know, it's just one stop on the train. It was going to finish really late, but there was this whole story around this party. It was a friend of a friend and they were all going to be 15 of them going there and back together. And there was a a fair amount of to and froing about whether this really was or wasn't okay because it just it didn't quite sit right but it didn't quite sit wrong enough you know somewhere in your gut you yeah. knew this wasn't quite right and Dan wasn't an amazing fibber to be perfectly honest and it just it just didn't it didn't quite fit and i do remember him saying come on mum you know i hardly ever go to parties which really wasn't true but it's not like you know they always say that <laughs> <laughs> you know me, I'm always at home. <laughs> um, and he said, and you know I'm sensible and responsible, which actually he really was by then. And so off he went. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a party. He didn't come home. And I had that, you know, you, you imagine things, don't you? As a parent, you imagine, you imagine the empty bed or that, you know, you think they'll be back and they won't, but then they are. And then all the, those kind of worst things just sort of, fell into place and kept getting worse. And then I, he wasn't home. I couldn't get through on his phone. And it got to Hoppers 4 and he wasn't back. And then it got to 5 and he wasn't back. And I was, I couldn't get, as I, I tried his phone, I couldn't get through. But, I, you know, I was trying to tell myself all these reasonable explanations. I'd left a message, I tried again. His phone probably ran out of charge and maybe he doesn't want to answer the phone to his mum when he's with his friends or, you know, there were all, I, I just, I was trying to rationalise, but it, I was, he'd never, ever been out that late before. And I, and I was so helpless because I, I didn't know what I could do or where I could go. You, was your husband with you at this point? Um, well, he was, but he was asleep and I didn't wake him up because I thought there's no point, you know, I'm worrying, there's no point both of us worrying. And then it got to half past five and I heard, a, I heard a car pull up outside and the engine was running and the outside porch door went and I thought, oh, that's, thank goodness that's down. He must've got a lift with someone. And it wasn't, it was this policeman. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's a normal month thing, but I've imagined, I'd imagined that so many times, you know, they'd be late or Tim would be late. And I'd kind of imagined that moment of the police knocking at the door. And, and it was, it was the police. I mean, it just. Did you go downstairs to open the door on your own? Yeah, I did. So I went downstairs. I mean, I thought it was odd because the door went and Dan got a key, but I opened the door. And, but Tim had heard the car pull up. He was going to, he thought it was some van driver or something keeping their engine running in the middle of the road, waking everyone up at half past five on a Saturday morning. So he was going to go and kind of um, give them a piece of his mind. <laughs> so both of you approached Yeah, the so we were both there and there was this policeman saying, are you the parents of Daniel Spargo Mabs? And it's just, I knew at that moment, I knew obviously something had gone really wrong. And there was that flash of either he's got himself caught up in something that's, and he's got in trouble with the police or something is really bad. And in that moment, I have to confess, in that kind of split second of, I really hope it's it's, it's the former and not the latter, because we can probably sort that out. But I'm not sure that we'll, you know, I don't know what that second will 
look like, that it has to be bad enough, you have the police knock at the door. And then he was saying all this stuff that just didn't make sense about this rave, Hillingdon, which I didn't know where that, I mean, I didn't know where that was. And he said it was thought that he'd taken ecstasy and he'd been found unconscious outside. So you, you're hearing words that you just didn't mean anything to you because no. Daniel was at a party yeah, somewhere with his else. friends, mm. not far. According to, to Dan. According that, to Dan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't figure and, and he couldn't tell us that obviously, you know, we we're trying to get more information. He couldn't tell us anything else. I mean, it must be an awful thing to have to do. No, I mean, he was telling us that he was in, in hospital, but then he went and so... He left you with the information of the hospital and Yes, that he was said it. he's in Hillingdon Hospital in intensive care. <laughs> they think he's taken ecstasy and that was it. That was all he could tell us, really. At this point, what's going through your mind about the state that, that Dan is in? Oh and... my goodness. I mean, I knew, I, I mean, I knew it must be really, really, really serious. I had no idea. I mean, this was nine and a half years ago. It was before the days when we'd got the hang of Google Maps or anything. So we got the sat now, we had to charge, get the laptop up, find the postcode. There were, seemed to be two sites. We didn't know what, you know, there was a whole kind of, and that I'd, I'd had nightmares where something had been happening to one of the boys and I hadn't been able to get there fast enough. You know, they'd be falling down a cliff or in a road and a lorry's coming or, and that, that kind of just not being able to get there fast enough. And that's what it felt like. It just felt like why can we, we just need to get there. How, how can it be taking so long to get out of the house? In my mind, when something like this happens to a family, I imagine the police to be with them all the way or somebody from yeah. services to be there and that, that, that you're on your own right Yes, now. and we didn't even really know where we were going or anything. Yeah. Driving across London in the panic. early hours of the morning in a complete panic. I know, and thankfully Tim got a really, because I was just in a complete state and... Mm. Tim just got in this really level head and mm. went, we've just got to get there. Um, and and we did. And all the way there, just texting everyone I could think of saying, just please pray, please pray. Dan's in intensive care. He's taken ecstasy. We don't know what's happening. Who are you texting? Well, my mum, my mum and dad, all my friends, my brother, my brothers, you know, just anybody that I could think of. I just wanted everyone to and be... Were people responding at that time? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, actually, not everybody. Now I'm saying yes, but I just think probably most people are asleep. But but people were as well. And and by the time we got to the hospital, it wasn't long before other people started appearing. Tim's brother and his sister and my friends and other friends and Dan's girlfriend, Jenna, who was just 15. She came with her mom. They'd been together for two and a half, more than just more than two years then. So they were just little when you know, they were 13, 14. They'd been together forever, Dan and Jenna. So poor Jenna. So, yeah, so we got to the hospital and then, of course, there's all this waiting, waiting, waiting. You just have to, I, I, know, I know, obviously, I'm sure they, they, well, I know, they would have been working incredibly hard mm. trying to stabilise Dan, which they never quite managed to do and get him set up on everything they needed to get him, to try and keep him alive. But we didn't know what was happening. Mm. And I think people did pop out from time to time and say, someone will be with you soon. And then in the end... After what felt like forever, a consultant came out and sat down and said, I can't even remember exactly what he said, but Dan had just got way, way, way too hot and his organs were shutting down. And ugh, just that, I mean, obviously I knew it was really serious and it was in a complete panic, but I don't think it was until he said that that I thought that I really thought oh my goodness, this could be it, you know, this really could be it for Dan. Yeah. And at that point, you're with Tim. Jacob. 
Jacob. Jacob was there as well. And bless his heart, he was only 18. And this, yeah, yeah, looking after us. <laughs> and was that the final kind of hope gone then? Did well, you feel no, at that point? Or no, did they had... Did they say there was more that they could do? Yes, although they kept saying that. Well, they kind of, there would be this, just this up and down, up and down of hope and despair. And there'd be something, there'd be something we could hold on to. I think at that stage, I think he, he might have said, something about it being 50-50. So I thought, there's, well, there's 50% chance, you know, that's really good. There's 50% chance that he'll be okay. And then those ratios kept kind of dipping around. But they kept saying, you know, he's young, he's healthy. Um, that is really on his side. And they would do everything they could. And they wouldn't be doing all of this if they didn't think there was hope. But when when they they... They, they had to move him to King's where they've got a specialist liver intensive care because um, he was just too poorly to be in a general intensive care. And we were really lucky that a bed came up because King's is brilliant and amazing specialists mm. there. But the consultant there, who was so good, he just became like this harbinger of doom. You know, <laughs> he just, there was just so much going wrong and going wrong so rapidly and so much that we didn't understand and couldn't process. Yeah. Because your knowledge of ecstasy and what it does to oh, the body no. prior to this was pretty much Leobets. zero. Yeah. yeah. Well, sensationalist yeah. news stories. Yes. And yes. Yeah. And we talked about six months before Dan died, he'd been to Reading Festival. And that was the first time that he'd seen people taking ecstasy because he was a complete chatterbox. I mean, obviously, he didn't tell me everything because I didn't know that he'd taken ecstasy twice before this time. But he that was clearly the first time because he was just I mean in amongst telling me all about everything else that gone went on at Reading Festival, all these people that had taken ecstasy and it was the first time he'd really mentioned that mm. and you know he was just telling me what they looked like and what they were saying and how funny it was and and so I said what I knew I mean you know you don't know what's in it you don't know how strong it is there can be all sorts mm. and it can just take one time. You know, one the whole one pill can kill thing. The Leobets, because Leobets was de died before Dan was born. I think it was yeah. the year before Dan was born, and he didn't didn't mean anything to him. Whereas for so many, of, of, generation, of, yes, yeah. Leobets yeah. was kind of the oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So you know, it can just take one time. I said that to him, and I remember him coming back with some random boy statistic about you're more likely to, whatever, <laughs> die eating a baguette. Or yes, something. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which so is probably true, but he... But you're yeah. there in Kings, you're being told things that, you know, you don't quite don't make process, sense. they don't make sense. And there were so many complications because there was so... I mean, again, I, I still don't fully, you know, I think it was all very complicated, but there were things going wrong that meant a lot of other things went mm. wrong that meant it was very difficult to stabilise him, one of which was something to do with how the the blood clots abnormally, but it meant that, that you bleed a lot from everywhere. And also he'd had to have this surgery on his legs because his legs had been swelling and they thought they might have to amputate his legs. And um, But but the wounds wouldn't heal because his liver wasn't working, so his blood wasn't clotting. And then he'd got this clotting thing going on anyway. So they were pumping loads and loads of fluids and mm. plasma and blood and and it was just kind of coming and and there was so much going wrong and so much going on around him and so many machines and wires and drains and that and could you numbers. see him all the time or were you unable to or were you having to 
go in occasionally. But pretty much all the time once he got to King's, we could be in with him. Right. And so all the time I could be, be in there, I was in there and I just talked to him all the time. Because, you know, you hear sometimes, don't you, when someone's been really unconscious and then they come round and they've heard somebody's voice and then it turns out it was, you know, somebody in the room. And I just thought, he just needs to hear my voice. So I just talked and talked and you couldn't, you couldn't get very near because he'd got all this stuff, you know, he was on kidney dialysis. He'd got all these bags of plasma and fluids and, and just all this, all sorts of wires and and things. And then he was on a ventilator because he didn't breathe. So he'd got all these tubes from his mouth and the big bank of machines with all those numbers and things um, that go up and down. And so you could get to at one side and sit there and there was a chair there. But they also put a, a high chair up by his head. So I could sit at his at his head. So I just sat at his head, stroked his hair, talked to him <laughs> all the time, all the time that I could. Yeah. And then did things... At some point on the Sunday, the consultant said basically there was one last thing they could try. And it was really aggressive, but really they tried everything else. And they were going to give it 12 hours. So I, that was about that was f- around about five o'clock on the Sunday. So I thought five o'clock on the Monday, what we've got to do is just keep him here till five o'clock on the Monday. So all of that night, I was watching those machines with the numbers going up and down. And I, I had asked somebody what they meant, but I, I couldn't, I wasn't processing anything. It didn't really mean anything to me. But I kind of, figured up is good and down is bad so I was kind of I'd be willing them to just watching those numbers going up and down up and down willing them to go up and thinking oh maybe he'll be okay maybe he'll be okay and then they'd go down again but he got to five o'clock and I was messaging people saying he's still here and I realized that didn't necessarily mean that he was going to be okay but we'd still got him and it came to the handover at eight o'clock and they were a really long time. You know, they'd normally been about, I would say normally, it was, you know, felt like forever. It wasn't that long. So we'd only been through a few, but they were just a really long time. We had to sit outside the room and then the consultant came in and he just said there was basically too much of him had died already. And he'd just been, I think the last thing they'd, given him one of the side effects was that it narrowed the capillaries and his circulation was so poor and his blood pressure was so low anyway and this had effectively his his arms and his legs had already died and they'd had the surgeons in to see whether amputation would give him more of a chance but there was just too much else that that was too damaged and he said, there's nothing more that, that we can do and we're going to have to switch everything off. And so Tim said, so you're saying my son is going to die this morning? And he said, yes, your son is going to die this morning. And that was, God. <laughs> sorry, I don't often go, go into it in quite so much. I think it's important to go through the detail because of what you have done next and how you are affecting other people's lives. But before we, we move on to that, 
ordinarily, you know, I think if anybody, if I was to chat to anybody or talk to anybody or interview anybody who has lost a child, you know, it's it's out of the natural order of events. Mm. People can't bear to even think about mm. it when they have children because it's it's totally against kind of our, you know, lineage kind of, you know, we don't we don't do that's not the way things happen. Death is is terrible and sad, but it's just unfathomable when it's in that that order of events. So aside from the trauma of that weekend and what you've been through and what, you know, all the kind of learnings of what, where was he? What was he? We, we didn't have all of that. You've also now got this horrendous kind of situation to deal with as a family, whether or not the phone call had come in the morning with, with an immediate kind of, mm. you know, prognosis, if you like, rather than, you know, the two days of, of agony that you've gone through and the hope and the despair and the hope. Talk to us about the immediate kind of aftermath in terms of the family and what happens over the few months after that for you and your coming to terms if you could with that night I do know I mean talking to you just now I, do, I haven't come to terms with that night at all I, I, I don't often sit back in it because it's it's not a nice place to sit um, but I mean the immediate aftermath was a lot of chaos I mean that really I think we were so blessed to have those two and a bit days with Dan because we could have he could have died before we even knew. But it was also really traumatising mm. and, and such a shock. that I mean, there was, there was a lot. So my brain was blown to complete smithereens and I couldn't process anything mm. or listen. I couldn't, I was just, I couldn't, I wasn't functioning at all and and you know you get home we got home from the hospital and what do you do what do you do what do you when we'd left it well when dan had i mean you know three three days before when he'd just gone to a party and said what he always said when he went out which is a silly joke i love you mum i promise i won't die which is just such a ironic last words um, beautiful last words so that was another gift as well you know there were so many gifts from that time but also it was how do you I don't know it was how do you get back to any kind of normalcy stability. in your life yeah and yeah. waking up in the morning and even thinking that brushing your teeth or washing your face or oh, was there no point to, yeah oh, absolutely no point doing to anything the really. most basic things yeah felt completely pointless I imagine yeah things matter very differently mm. And just thinking, I mean, we were just scooped up by so many people. We were yeah. so blessed to have such an incredible community of support because people cooked for our, our lovely, lovely church had a rotor and people brought food around every day for six weeks because I couldn't, I couldn't even work out what plate to get out of the cupboard, mm -hmm. let alone. When I started trying to do my own thing, I just, I hadn't realised how complicated it, I mean, I'm pretty usually fairly capable, competent person, <laughs> fairly resilient up until this point. But it's really complicated working out how to write a shop, you know, to go shopping. You've got to think, what do I need? But then how you need, just the whole process. Anyway, it, it, it blew every circuit in my head. But it also, we were immediately the next morning forced to be very focused because the reporters started knocking at eight o'clock the next morning. And... We'd never had reporters knock at the door. We'd never spoken on, to the press before. On what before. basis were they thinking that this was a, a story for the public interest? How did they kind of sell themselves to you in that respect, that this was an important story that they <sighs> you know, had to intrude on your grief for? 
I do you know I can't I can't remember anyone trying to to justify it. It was just it was no. It was news, and they wanted. It to was come. just news, and and they picked it up from various. Well, you know that's what that's their job, isn't it, mm. to find out what's out there, mm. and and you know I didn't know what to do. There were all these people knocking at the door, and the first was our local paper, and I guess you know we had thought maybe it'll be on page fourteen of the Croydon Advertiser or something, mm. but but not. Not you know it's our news. It's not anybody else's news particularly, but they just they didn't stop. So I was being very polite, you know, as you as you do. You know, I'm sorry, it's not a very good time. I hadn't slept or eaten for days, and I hadn't slept that. I just couldn't. My heart, my heart was going. Boom, 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 boom. Um, and I felt so sick all the time. You know, so I, I wasn't. I, it wasn't a good time. I was still in my pajamas, and um, so I said, "Do you mind coming back later?" Because I didn't really know what to say. <laughs> really good time so then there were a few more I said it's not a great time do you mind coming back later and anyway it turned out they were all down the road and there were cameramen and and then our family we'd been allocated a family liaison officer in the hospital and um he came round around midday and I said Steve I don't know what to do we've got these reporters knocking what do I do and in the meantime word had got round anyway um through the school you know what teenagers like I mean it was just instantly everybody knew everything and um, the school had had an assembly, and 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 of course our church knew, and work my work knew, and so and our neighbours, you know, so everybody, so our house just filled filled up with people, which was lovely. So lots of, I mean, also chaotic, but but it was there were there were people, just people who cared about the fact that Dan had died. They're coming all the time, and then the police came in the middle of all of that, and all of these reporters knocking. So it's just madness. And Steve said. Um, you can either issue a statement um, or you can say no comment and they would do that for us. I didn't know there's a police press bureau. Who knew? But the, um, So they could say no comment or we could write a statement and they would issue that or we could talk to them and they would manage that for us through their press bureau. So we decided that we would, we would talk partly because Jacob had then Googled and found that a certain paper had already got headlines out there saying, ecstasy teen dies at illegal rave and a picture they'd got from Dan on Facebook, you know, with his hoodie and looking a bit kind of... <laughs> and, so you and felt we thought, he was almost he misrepresented. Wasn't an ex- and, yeah. I know, he wasn't an ecstasy teen. He wasn't going, mm. as far as I knew, that was first, I mean, I don't think he'd been to a rave because he'd never been out that late, late before, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there was partly, hold on a minute, that's mm. not who Dan was. Mm. And if you're going to start talking about him in the public domain, then you I, want you to need control to, that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And but also a sense of this. We we just did not realise this was quite so close to our door. I mean, mm. we didn't feel we were ignorant, but we just didn't realise how easy it was to fall in that hole. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
So was this the first time that there was something inside you that wanted to warn or tell other parents? Yes, yes. And this is quite early on. Yes. To have those day. feelings that you, like, people need to know yeah. that this is real. When you, when yeah. you say these things to kids, you kind of say it because you feel you have to, but actually this, this actually, is the reality. Real. Yeah, and if it could happen to Dan, it could happen to anybody. And if I was a parent that didn't know this stuff, chances are there were other parents out there that didn't know this stuff Because just to, just to be clear on, you know, you've mentioned it before, that there were a couple of times before, as far as you're aware, that night he'd never taken No, yeah, I, I assume this is the first time ever. But he had actually... A couple of yes, times, which yeah. his friends presumably told you about afterwards. Yes, Because yeah. there were five of them that night? Five of them that night, and yes. they'd taken... It was MDMA, so it was right. little powder, so little right. bags of powder. But yeah, all the same dealer, looked the same. So they, they could have been any one of them. Yeah. That it was bad luck, basically, out of those five. Yeah. That it was Dan who was the one who took... The ecstasy, it was the just so, was, it was just yeah. so incredibly strong. I mean, there were other factors that he we found that he'd had it twice before, but in a very short space of time in year twelve. So a friend had given him some of hers to try. They'd been to a gig. I didn't know people took drugs at gigs. That's how much I knew. I thought they just listened to music <laughs> and danced, maybe. Um, and then they'd gone to another gig a month or so later, and she'd got him and another friend some of their own from her dealer. And but he hadn't enjoyed that, and I'd forgotten. He'd spent the next few days in bed with a temperature and he was off school for a few days. Right, which you didn't realise at the time. I'd got no idea and mm. I'd forgotten all about it until I looked back and thought, oh yeah, no, I just thought he'd got a bug. He'd been mm. to this thing and I thought it's probably not very hygienic and mm. he's picked something up. But we kind of got more information when we got his phone back from the police after the sensing, sensing of the dealers and we could look back through the narrative that mm. led up to that. That, it, that reaction had clearly shaken him and his friend that had got the drugs for them had, she'd also had a, a bad reaction that night and she described her reaction it had clearly shaken him and over those next i don't know six weeks or something it was all very very short time span i could see that he was making an excuse not to be at a particular party or not to there was talk of a festival the next summer and they were things to do with the family you know, oh, we've got to go and do something or other mm. that I know we wouldn't have been doing or, mm. you know, oh, we've got to see my grandparents next summer. So he was so I can't trying to stay away from... I, I'm guessing. I mean, mm. this is me reading into it, but also knowing that that's what I would have done because mm. I, I, you know, thinking you might end up getting caught up in something mm. for whatever reason, whether it's... Mm. it Actually, it does look like fun and I'm sure it's going to be... And then he didn't really want to go to this rave, which is really hard to find out. He was, I mean, obviously, there must have been part of him that's going, well, it'll be fun. Mm. But there was a lot of, oh, but I'm really tired and I haven't got any money mm. and it's going to mess up George's party mm. and I'm falling asleep on the bus. And, you know, there was lots and lots of over about 40 minutes of messages kind of coming out with the this whole... This was back to you. Back to his friend. To his friend, right. Yeah, who really wanted him to go. Um, and of course, you know, of course didn't mean him to come to any harm. So there was pressure before he knew that that, that night he'd be expected to join yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he was on the in then. Mm. I don't know. But it's fair to say nothing had really changed about his behaviour. Not at all. In, in, no. In the, in the weeks and months leading up to that Only night. for the good. Mm. And I think a couple of people asked that after, you know, didn't he see, seen any mm. signs? Mm. Absolutely nothing. The only sign of anything we could have seen relating to drugs was this having a temperature after getting... But I mean... You, you didn't know, put that... No, together. why would I? Yeah. Why would I of course think not. that? But then, if I'd known more now, I could have maybe. Which kind of brings us on to 
how I came to hear about you because from that grief and that well of immobilizing sadness, you have projected real kind of knowledge and hope and clarity to a lot of people, you know, kind of a lot of demystifying and, and being, you know, very educational in terms of how you're doing this through both book, play, talks. Uh, so let's go back to when that idea first started that you wanted to get out and do something positive. So from that point of thinking, we just need to warn other people mm. um, because this really doesn't need to happen. There are there are things that could have been different, that things that could be different for other people. And if you, you know if you fall in a hole, you kind of want to warn people mm. there's a hole there. And that quite quickly became formalized through really through I mean, we had this whole community of support around us through conversations and people kind of why don't you start a drug education charity? And I was a teacher I would I'd been working in adult education for many years before Dan died and so there was there, I guess there, w- there was an extent to which that that was something that I could do mm. and we just acted ridiculously quickly we were registered with company's house eight days after Dan died which wow. was just mad because we had no idea what we were doing we just knew we had to do something mm. and did think in those early days well you know if it doesn't come to anything it's it's provided a purpose because there were so many people that wanted to do something positive yeah. you know that you're left with this loss and helplessness mm. and adrenaline mm. and just wanting to have a focus and something that you feel you can do that you can't do for the person you want to do it for. You can I think displace that energy. That, well, a lot of a lot of people that lose children um, yes. that are prematurely, as in, you know, as children as opposed to as adults, especially, that there is an energy that goes into some kind of fundraising, even if it's for a short period of time, you know, a few years as opposed to 40 years, that, that it feels yes. like that energy has to go somewhere positive. And it's also about keeping their name prominent and alive isn't it yes and and just it was such a bad bad thing that dan died and all we can do with that is make it do as much good as it possibly can we can we can use it and 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 make that work make it work so eight days days later (laughs) you register it with company's house and um and the idea is to educate yes and to make sure that other young people had better information than Dan had. We found he hadn't had any, or his friends said anyway, that he hadn't, he and they hadn't had any drug education. And we realised, we came to find out that they they weren't alone. Mm. And also, I hadn't had any, the drug education that I needed to make sure mm. that I think that's Dan the important thing safe. to say as well, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's parents having Absolutely. some knowledge. So what came, what, what was the first thing, the practical thing that you decided you could kind of do before... You know, you started, obviously, you've got oh. all kinds of things happening now. <laughs> but was it was it going into schools and talking? Was that your first? It's really difficult to say what the first thing is because there are all these different ideas generating at similar sorts of times. So we thought, well, we need to we need to have resources for schools. And one and Dan's drama, Dan loved drama and his drama teacher was one of the first, first trustees. And so she knew what schools needed and what teachers needed and something that's just easy. You just pick up and teach it and, it, and, it's, and it's there for you because teachers don't have time to plan and prepare and 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 even kind of think about something particularly because they're so busy doing whatever their subject areas so so we had that we had i've got to do something with parents and i i my professional specialism was working with parents so that's that was what i knew was teaching parents it was teaching parents who got limited literacy skills that was my specialism but working with them and their children together in partnership with schools so i i got that 
Dan's drama teacher, Izzy Forrester, also said, you know, you really ought to think about drama because it's such a powerful way of communicating a message to young people. And this is amazing playwright, Mark Wheeler, who writes these powerful plays for young people about issues that affect them. Would you mind if I contact? No, I said, of course we didn't. So she contacted him. So we were doing interviews. With, I think that was in the May. Dan died in the January. It's bonkers, complete madness when I look back. Really, we just, we but. We were just determined to stop any harm happening to anybody else's child because it is just so unnecessary. So we've got the parents, we've got the teachers, training teachers, because why would you necessarily know any of this stuff mm. as a teacher? Mm. And we'd got the play. And we also had this idea about youth ambassadors because we thought the young people influence each other. They're such a, they They're so important what they think. And we'd got all of... Dan's friends who were just so desperate to do something. So we got this big band of young people who were telling us what we should be doing as well. Mm. We picked their brains, we got their advice and we... Because what you have tried to do, I think, is the tone of this to the young people has got to be educational as much mm. as it is um, kind of warning against and just, ju- you know, oh, just don't do this oh, is yeah, not no, good it's enough not just, as a message. No, absolutely yeah. it isn't, no. So how do you get that tone right? Because I think a lot of parents listening to this, you know, will be wondering, you know, how you, how you came to that tone. Yes. I mean, I guess, you know, as a parent, don't you? I mean, how easy would the life of parents of teenagers be if you could just say don't do it and they wouldn't and they do it but you realised that you had to the play had to be something that was very informative yes. when you talk to young people and I know firsthand from my daughter's experience of listening you know that your tone is one that isn't just because you could just stand up there for one minute and say don't do this couldn't you but you have to yeah. you have to tell a story obviously which to an extent will shock them and make them listen and, and sit up but also to go away with some knowledge and empowered yes, to make Yes, it's the skills decision. as well, making those decisions. Mm. I did a lot of research in terms of the evidence base of what works and what doesn't work and what, what approaches are effective. And obviously the just say no, it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's always your safest option. Yeah. And young people, you know, teenagers do need to know it's okay to say no if you want mm. to. But also that it's not just about having the information, but also having the skills to manage those decision-making situations safely and I guess knowing how how teenagers will receive information most openly is going to be just recognizing that this is what their lives are like and a lot of that is from talking to teenagers and listening to teenagers and being aware of the kinds of issues that they're facing and being realistic and pragmatic about the situations they might find themselves in and we ask them. So we, we survey students before we go into the year 11, 12, 13. So from 15 to 18, we ask them directly before we go into a school, because there can be really different issues in different schools in terms of what's more prevalent, what they perceive their peers' attitudes being towards other substances um, and what they would find most useful from that time. And by that stage, by that age, what they really want is to know how to how to reduce the risks of people who are taking risks mm. that, that quite often be a sort of somebody in, in most surveys at some point will be saying, look, you're not going to stop people that are doing stuff are going to do stuff. 
um, but they need to know how to do it more safely. Mm. And building in all of those practical strategies, how you can get yourself out, set yourself up and, with it. And the parents' resource is is kind of like a bible of <laughs> information <laughs> regarding uh, drugs that you might never never heard of before. Yes. So I've written a book which you very kindly referenced. So I'm going to mention it. <laughs> it's called I Wish I'd Known. And it's, it is a, a handbook for parents. It's everything that I wish I'd known before mm. Dan died. And it's kind of, it's like one of our parents' workshops in a book, really, with a lot mm. of memoir as well, kind of woven Which around I it all. Which I can thoroughly uh, recommend and endorse Thank as you. something that, as I said to you before, every parent really should have one. Thank you. <laughs> and you explain in the book about kind of, you know, what they might look like and how, yes. you know, easy or not they are to get hold of and kind of what, what the, what the um, behavioural changes yes. uh, might be and the kind of chemistry almost behind them. Because, you know, when you were describing Dan's physical state and manifestation of what the effect of the of the MDMA was on his body people don't realize that do they and no. that and that educational piece yeah. even for kids is really yes. important yes and the storytelling element has always been really important and in a way that's where we started was telling Dan's story because storytelling is just so incredibly powerful I'm an English teacher so mm. stories are I think we tune into stories in a very different way mm. than any other sort of listening a good story well told i mean you can tell a story badly and it can be very boring but but, but the play um which you, you just play is, alluded yes. to that's obviously had incredible impact as well yes that's, and it's a gcse drama set text yes now, i just saw that's got into the, yeah into onto the syllabus which yeah. is incredible yeah that's that's huge kind of testament to how brilliant the play is but also how impactful it's been as well so yes that, that will be a core part of in the education of those students. We commissioned it for an educational purpose and mm. it's great that it's also an amazing play and because it's a, a brilliantly written play, it's got onto the curriculum. And I mean, if you're seeing a performance of the play, it's it's incredibly powerful. And there's something about live drama, isn't there? Mm. And you just get kind of immersed in it. But if you're studying the play, you're thinking about the characters, the, the dynamic, mm. the issues, the impact... Mm. You're feeling it and experiencing. The title of the play, <laughs> that was Dan's last words um, before he was just, it, it was a silly joke. He knew I worried, <laughs> as you do. Um, and I had this thing, you know, when they started, they get to an age where they start going out and about more and more. And I just thought I need to, I need to make sure just in case, you know, the last thing. I want the last thing that I say to them to be told, told them I love them. So every time they went out, I say, I love you, Dan. And probably not literally every time. <laughs> They're just going out to the garden to play football or something. Um, but but it became a bit of a kind of a ritual um, because he'd go, you just, you're only saying that because you think I'm going to die. <laughs> That's what he said to start off with. Why do you keep telling me you love me, mum? <laughs> Why are you being weird? <laughs> Why do you keep hugging me? <laughs> But it became this thing. So he'd come and find me. He was a good few inches taller than me. And he'd come and find me before he was going out. So he'd go, I'm, I'm off now, Mum. And he'd bend down so that I could give him a hug and a kiss and say, I love you, Dad. And he'd say, I love you, Mum. I promise I won't die. Um, and that was the last thing he said in our kitchen. And then he, off he went and never came back. And that became the title of the play, which I was really cross about for a long time because if anybody asked... Because I just couldn't say that. Now I can say it. I'm getting stronger all the time. Um, but if people were saying, what's the play called? I'd go, just yeah. look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having him, you know, or somebody play him 
oh. on stage. What was that like the first well, I time? Well, I have to say I... I you don't watch it? I haven't watched it. Well, I did, I mean, initially because... So Mark Wheeler worked on it with his youth theatre company in Southampton. Um, to div- And really it was with them. So it was developed very much with young people and they were all mostly 15, 16, 17. There was the youngest, Ollie was 12 and um, Natasha was 21. But, you know, they were all young people. So Mark took this quite raw script that was entirely our words that he'd woven together into this play and worked with them to develop into the what became then the published play. And they did have somebody playing Dan. And I think we fall in love with people very easily anyway, I certainly do, and and especially young people. And we got so attached to, to and they were so committed to it, so passionate about getting it right. And it was all so early. You know, this wasn't even, it was all happening in the first year since Dan dies. It was all so raw. And there was a boy, um, Harry, who was playing Dan. And it, it turned out for various reasons, he wasn't able to follow. He, he was, turned out he was amazing at kickboxing. He got into Team GP, but he had to choose between drama and kickboxing and chose kickboxing, which was obviously a great choice because it turned out that he was really good at that. But, but they were left very close to their premiere with no nobody playing the main character. But all of Dan's, because it was a verbatim play, well, Dan's words were all reported speech anyway because because right. um, he didn't wasn't there to give his words. And But what they did was that they, they decided to have a hoodie that would represent Dan. So in that production, and that's what then has got written into the, the published play, that people will do that differently. Somebody, different members of the cast, then sort of they multi-rolled so right. they would put the hoodie on and when they'd got the hoodie on they were then Dan but it meant they could do all these other things with this hoodie so they could hold it they could lay it down you know they could the hoodie could be on you know so it was it became this really powerful symbol but I I I found it absolutely unbearable to watch and I and I watched it five times because I loved these young people they were so lovely and they loved us and I thought every time it's going to get easier Every time I see it, it'll get easier. And it just didn't. It just got hard every single time. And and I just, I won't, I, I don't watch it. I, I nearly did again recently. There was a, theater, a professional tour of national theatres of the, the full play. The, there's a touring production that be going around schools that's, that's shortened. And I kind of, there's a new production or something. And I think, oh, because other people are seeing it, I kind of want to see what they're seeing. And we, especially if we've commissioned, you know, we commissioned theatre and education tours and there's, but I can't, I drop full, I'm so much better than I was. You know, it's you been go, nine and a half years. Like you go backwards. I fall straight down a hole, right back into it. Aside from throwing yourself headfirst into this world of educating people, specifically about young people, about drugs and parents, did you find yourself in that grieving process with time or space to do anything else? Because you just alluded there to taking steps forwards. Mm. Has there been anything else that you've done for you? to mm. to deal with your grief lots of therapy <laughs> talking therapy yes yes lots of therapy specifically with people who are um bereavement counselors well yes who relate to, ch- to parents who've lost children well the first one wasn't but she was brilliant anyway and then the next one i had was a sp- she specialized in trauma counselling and bereavement, the child loss Mm. specifically, and specifically actually what she termed a sudden violent death. She was brilliant. And there's somebody I still chat to, but on a kind of a different basis, really. And would you, anybody listening to this who has been through 
anything similar would you, and isn't speaking to somebody, would you recommend that as, as a route? Yeah. I mean, it, everybody deals with things in their own way and things affect people differently. And But I, one of the things I found incredibly helpful actually is talking to other parents who've lost children because it's so difficult to understand. Mm. It's such an awful thing to experience and it's really difficult to explain it without having gone through it. And you kind of don't really want anyone else to come near knowing what it feels like because it's horrible. Having people around who get it and you don't have to apologise and you don't have to explain, you don't have to kind of feel that you've got to justify the fact that it's been nine and a half years and actually you can still fall in a hole and be in a right back in everything again. And also specifically parents who've lost a child in similar circumstances because losing a child is awful losing a child to drugs has its own sorts of I mean I think losing a child anyway there is a unique brand of awfulness to all of them the particular uniqueness to do with drugs is stigma guilt I mean I think you feel guilty but you know you you have your particular sort of guilt all the things you could have done all the things you should have known stigma is huge though Mm. and then often you've got police involvement you've got a criminal justice process media involvement there's other stuff that makes it more complicated and and having people around who just get it i mean i think it's probably the same for most things isn't it if Mm, you've got mm. something that's a struggle having people that have some kind of experience yes and what about the positivity that you're able to kind of transmit and change potentially change people's lives and families lives through what you're doing has that had an impact on you know your journey with grief yeah, enorm- enormously, it's hugely. And I denied that a lot. If people start off and said, and does it help you to do this? I say, no, because I didn't want it to seem, I didn't want to feel either that I was doing it for some, like my own personal, personal therapy. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but it, it has helped me enormously to have something really positive to do, to put that energy that you have. You think how much how far you would go, what you would do, the lengths you would go to to stop your child dying. And Mm. you've got all of that. That is a huge amount of energy Mm. and focus. And to be able to do something really positive with that and to feel that it's... But not everybody does, do they? You know, and don't underestimate, you know, how incredible that is. Because understandably, a lot of parents just shut down and that's absolutely you know, and they can't and they can't they can't do anything so for you to to use that energy in such a positive way is incredible because a lot of people it kind of makes them think life is you know life is terrible and I'm not gonna yeah you know open the door to any positivity but by doing what you do that's a positive action isn't it and so yeah. you know it's it's not to be, you know, when you joked about it being for your, you know, gain, <laughs> it's you know, totally to, to even take that first step <laughs> and to stand up and talk about Dan, you know, is is an, an enormous thing, to enormously generous of you to share your oh. grief with other people. And that is why, you know, you've got an OBE for, for what you've oh, done so far. You. And it feels like you feel there's a, still more to be done. There's so oh, many gosh, more absolutely. children and young people that you can help. I just feel I'm doing what I can and I'm doing it because I can and that doesn't feel like I deserve any, you know, just I, I can. and. But you must see, you must get that feedback that things, this is worthwhile doing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's incredibly, no, see, that's terribly selfish as well, isn't no, it? No, <laughs> not at all because, because then you think, well, actually, if I'm going to keep well, putting myself exactly, in these situations which yes, can be uncomfortable yes, for me, yes. at least I know 
I'm affecting some kind of change. Yes. What kind of things do they generally say to you when they've heard you talk? What they really value is that the the kind of sense of being spoken to on a level and it just being realistic and not over-dramatised, feeling that they've been spoken to honestly and sensibly and practically about the issues that they're facing. They're not being patronised, mm. they're not being talked down to, they're not, nobody's... Telling them off. No, exactly. Mm. Uh, and I think they, they they will often go into a drugs talk, you know, mm. expecting that they're going to be told drugs are bad, don't do drugs. Because and... I think, you know, I'm sure you've been through all kinds of scenarios in your mind about the night and when Dan left to go to what you thought was a party and turned out to be a rave. And I know as, as a parent of 17-year-olds, you know... You'd like to think that if he turned around and said, actually, I'm going to a rave and I think I might take ecstasy, I would probably blow my top. Completely. Yeah, which listening to your story now would not have been the right reaction because you'd want to think you could have a considered conversation. <laughs> uh, and But learning through your book and your story, you know, I'd like to think that there's 50% of me might try and have that considered, you know, the, the previous kind of blow my top and you are absolutely not. And this is, you know, which is not the right way necessarily mm. to deal with it. So I'm sure if anybody wants any more information, you know, we will we will leave it on, on the um, podcast, so of course, much. but they should definitely, you know, read your book and learn more about the story and hopefully... Um, unless they're a lot more me me measured and mild-mannered than me, they, they they might change their kind of conversation around drugs with their kids, which I think is yes. generally the, the lesson from kind of this and having knowledge and being able to just have a, I suppose, a moment, just take a moment on those things and yes. read the signs as well, you know. Yes, and listen. I think listen and, and be... I mean, for any of the, the issues that our teenagers face, knowing, reinforcing at any opportunity that you are always, you are absolutely always on their side. You are, there is absolutely nothing they can do that will break the love that you have for them. You know, that they, they, they cannot, they just, you can't do that. You might not like what they're doing and you might, it might terrify you, but you would want to know and you would, you would always be there for them. Mm. And just trying to, to keep because they don't always necessarily believe that and they do worry so much I've, I've, i wrote a second book not to two, two, two book plug in one thing um it's called talking the tough stuff with teens but i did so many focus groups with teenagers for that and and overwhelmingly they worry you know parents worry about having these difficult conversations but teenagers worry just as much and a lot of that is about they don't want they don't want to upset you they don't want to disappoint you they don't want you to feel badly about them because as a parent it's easy to forget as a parent of a teenager but actually your your good opinion matters to them more than anything in the entire universe and they could give you every impression that they couldn't care two hoots about what you think about anything and you know nothing but it is absolutely the case that that is what they value more than anything and finally i've got to ask you what do you think dan would think about all you've achieved in the last decade Oh, well, nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. I think he would be. Oh, I mean, people say he would be so proud. I hope he would be. I think he would be so embarrassed by an awful lot of it. <laughs> but I think I I know. I mean, it's so difficult to say if Dan was here, this is what he would have done because we're doing it because he's not here. But he would have absolutely been the one that would go. We've right. We've got to do something. And we need to be looking out for other people here. 
this is something that doesn't need to happen. He he would be absolutely right behind and in in it, and he is, isn't he? Absolutely, he's he's front and center, isn't he? So, yeah, and I'm sure he's you know he's with you all the time in everything you do, and you know his spirit is prevalent in in all the things <laughs> you've written and all the things you talk about. So, um, thank, thank you, you so much for, no, for sharing you. that because I know it's you know it doesn't matter how many years to go back mm. down into that that night and the days afterwards is enormously painful so you're yet again being incredibly generous Fiona sharing yourself with us so thank you thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to speak thank you well there are no words really are there It's every parent's worst nightmare and it must take so much courage to tell that story and speak about what happened to Dan. If you want to find out more about the work that Fiona and the Daniel Spargo Maps Foundation does, just head to dsmfoundation.org.uk. And as I said, I highly recommend you also seek out a copy of Fiona's book, I Wish I'd Known, Young People, Drugs and Decisions, A Guide for Parents and Carers, if you want to learn more about that. I'm so grateful to Fiona for sharing her story with us and thanks to you as well for listening and to Spiritland Productions for producing. I'm back again next week with another guest with an extraordinary story to share. But until then, take care and bye for now. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.